0: You're listening to The Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 30th of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. The ambiguous legacy of Henry Kissinger, the bewilderingly plentiful employment prospects of Liz Truss and Beans. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Carol Walker and Ivor Gaber will discuss the day's big stories. We'll have Henry Ree Sheridan's latest letter from New York City and a tribute to Pogue singer Shane McGowan, who has died aged 65. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I am joined today by Ivor Gaber, Professor of Political Journalism at the University of Sussex, and by Carol Walker, political commentator and Times Radio presenter. Boo! Carol, as we usually do, we will grudgingly permit you a small amount of our airtime to plug your programming on an obviously lesser network.
1: Uh, yeah, I um, present a nightly show uh, on Times Radio, but I'm also really still... Uh, a political journalist, Andrew, and uh, spend, um, not every day, but I do pop into Westminster quite a lot, uh, Prime Minister's questions. Um, And it, it does just seem at the moment as though our current Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, Every week arrives with a, a a tray of custard pies, which he <laughs> offers to his um, opposite number, Sakir Starmer, who duly lobs them at him. And and this week was uh, was no exception. So
0: you've been there for the opening salvos of the Anglo-Hellenic War of 2024. <laughs> we shouldn't tempt the fates, really. Yeah, uh, I I'm, know. Uh, I'm, I'm anticipating. Ivory, that this is this is the this is the early stages. It'll it, it'll take a while to right. get going properly. I don't well, think we'll see Greek gunboats say up the Thames for another few weeks at least.
1: Yeah, I mean Rishi Sunak had an opportunity this week to try to Um, calm things down. This of course for people who haven't been following this is the row over the Elgin marbles as we call them in the UK, the Parthenon sculptures. The Greeks want them back and when the Greek Prime Minister came over he happened to mention during an interview that the Greeks want the marbles back which has Mm -hmm. kind of been their position for a couple of hundred years but um, Rishi Sunak got very cross cancelled a meeting um, and has been doing all he can to fuel this diplomatic spat with Greece ever since um, And yesterday was accusing um Kyriakos Mitsotakis the Greek prime minister of of grandstanding um which, to be quite honest, doesn't even seem to have impressed many of his own side, let alone anyone else.
0: Uh, and is a bit rich coming from the flouter rather than the floutee. Um, Ivor, as I understand it, we are, we, we are now obliged to curtsy in your presence. It is not obligatory, but some people feel more relaxed if they have. <coughs> you, you are now, in all seriousness, Ivor Gaber OBE.
2: I am, um, and I'm modestly uh, flattered. Uh, uh, what do they What do they call it when you suddenly feel you've been given a role that you're not worthy of? Having <laughs> said that, what's it? What, I'm trying to think of the word. You know, when you you assume uh, imposter syndrome.
1: Imposter is that what you're syndrome. Thinking of? But you shouldn't have it either. Congratulations. Well, it, it, is, was it not, is
0: it is excellent. Do, uh, do do feel free to to big note briefly well, about why you have been well, thus garlanded. Very briefly because um, I am slightly embarrassed by being
2: an officer of the British Empire, <laughs> well, I was emailed by somebody who's got a campaign to change empire to excellence, which I think is a rather good idea. Um, I, for many years, have laboured in the barren fields of UNESCO fighting for better measures for the UN to be more involved in journalistic safety. And for much to my surprise, had a, quite a lot of support from the British government, and we eventually managed to get the UN to adopt a plan of action, which is now rolled in. And essentially, what we're doing is journalists are very aware of journalistic safety, trying working with courts, police, and so forth to make them aware of that this is a big issue and if you want to have any pretensions to democracy, you have to protect your journalists. Now, as I say that, in the wake of, we're currently experiencing the biggest death toll of journalists in recent times because Mm -hmm. actually the rates, the number of journalists being killed worldwide has been going down and down and down. But this year... Surprise, surprise, Israel and Gaza, obviously mainly Gaza, over 50 journalists or media workers have been killed, and that's going to send the graph shooting up. Anyway, I spent many boring meetings and lobbying and writing agendas and so forth, for which I was completely unpaid, but I have got a gong.
0: Well, <clears throat> I, I would say that the, the post nominals and the medal are the very least you deserve. Congratulations sincerely. Yeah, um,
1: absolutely. Many congratulations,
0: Ivor. Uh, we will be starting with the passing of Henry Kissinger, former US Secretary of State and National Security Advisor who has died at the age of 100. It may have been some consolation to citizens of the countries impacted by some of his brighter ideas that he lived long enough to see his largely self-awarded reputation as a latter-day Clemens von Metternich seriously questioned, to the extent that he was unable to travel outside the United States without taking legal advice re the prospects of getting his collar felt at the other end. Famously, Kissinger's receipt of the 1973 Nobel Peace Prize for ending a Vietnam War he had done so very much to prolong prompted the great satirist Tom Lehrer to announce his retirement. Um, Carol, first of all, if we're going to have a bit of a lash at not speaking ill of the dead, um, where would we assess his positive accomplishments?
1: Um, Well, you you nicely sum up, I think, uh, the fact that This was a statesman who was hugely controversial. I think one thing that most people would agree is that it's hard to think of another statesman who has had quite such a significant impact over the many decades um, that he was roaming the globe uh, on uh, international politics. I I think his achievements really came in the earlier part of his career when he clearly was instrumental in uh, opening up a dialogue between the United States, firstly uh, with China, mm-hmm. uh, and bringing about uh, the first summit that there had ever been um, between um, the, the leaders of the two countries and then Russia and then paving the way really for those arms limitation treaties um, in the days that uh, the Soviet Union, as it then was, Um, uh, seemed to be ready to take a few very tentative steps uh, in from the cold. So I think those will be seen as his greatest achievements, though undoubtedly clouded, as you have referred there, to um his his role in the, in the United States' role in the Vietnam War in Cambodia, and even in the last few months of his life uh, suggesting to Ukraine that it should be able to give up a chunk of its territory in order to to sue for peace um, and I think that that will um further cloud the the judgment of of what he achieved overall
0: i mean, it's it's hard to say uh if he had a coherent ideology beyond the the promotion of h Kissinger. but there there was this very Metternich like fetish for stability at almost all costs but that that's always kind of an illusion isn't it
2: It is, but people who who hold it don't see it. But I do think there is a coherent ideology which was um, American supremacy. Mm. um, That he saw America as a source of worldwide stability and peace. I mean, people have argued. You know, he did bring. He was instrumental in ending the war in Vietnam with not a great. I mean, at the expense of fifty thousand civilian deaths in Cambodia and Laos, um, and it lasted two years, and then the the North Vietnamese took. Took the South, so it was pretty pointless. War. Well, we will know it was a pretty pointless war in the first place. But I do think there is talk, what is it? Talks something about carry a big stick, talk quietly, carry a big stick. <clears throat> um, he was a diplomat. People do speak greatly of his personal charm. I never saw it myself, but he he he, he had an incredible address book, so to speak. Um, And if you look at the tributes being paid to him, um, a lot of people in powerful positions now or in the past seem to have known him and sort of liked him. Just one final word, and it's very relevant today. He was, he grew up in Nazi Germany, a Jewish family. Um, his parents escaped. He came to... So local boy made good. You know, um, there, there was a background there that mm-hmm. he had seen what happens if you allow dictators, if you like, to run amok. Although, having said that, I he, suddenly He went on to Pil-
0: encourage quite a few quite of them to do exactly that. Saying,
2: so I think I would <clears throat> withdraw that remark. But nonetheless, he had a coherent philosophy and that was
0: the American century. Um, Did he also, Carol, possess a remarkably, well, for him, useful understanding of of how the media worked? Because he did become a a celebrity in a way that certainly most politicians and very much most diplomats do not. I I was minded earlier to look out the transcript of an interview I did, God, ages ago now, 2001 with Christopher Hitchens, around the time that Hitchens wrote that book, The Trial of Henry Kissinger. And and I asked Hitchens about how he saw um, um... Kissinger's own reputation management. Um, and what Hitchens said was this, and I quote him, he said it was done the same way celebrities generally do it you give access to people, you keep them guessing as to who is favoured and who isn't you trade access and leaks in return for your version appearing in the paper and you get them to write you up as someone larger than life. And once they've done that it's quite hard for them to climb down and say actually we blew up a rather dubious and mediocre fellow into a superhuman figure. Uh, in order to take him down they have to admit that they not only missed the story, but that they were part of the falsification of the record.
1: Oh, well, I mean, <laughs> who am I to argue with Peter Hitchens, who is, uh, clearly knows a lot more Christopher, about... Christopher, that was. Oh, Christopher <laughs> Hitchens. I apologise. I apologise. I apologize. Uh, um, uh, yes. Uh, it, Henry Kissinger clearly um, was personally hugely ambitious mm. and used the media to... Further his personal reputation. But I think what he then seemed to do is to use his reputation. To um, in the course of his negotiations around the world. And Ivor mentioned his background uh, growing up Mm -hmm. in Nazi Germany. He did then play quite a significant role in the Middle East in the 1970s and helped bring about um, what was seen at the time as some huge achievements in um, bringing about um, dialogue and agreement between Egypt and Israel. Um, And he did seem to use... The force of his personality and his reputation to at least ensure that people listened to him now he also w- was known for having told completely different things to different sides um, diplomacy, diplomacy <laughs> telling them telling each side what they wanted to hear um but it does seem as though he used that personal reputation um which was partly built up through his willingness to to talk to the media, his colourful turn of phrase, that gravelly voice, uh, and that he did turn to his advantage uh, in in his diplomatic missions, although, of course, uh, things like his record in Vietnam, where he, yes, got the Nobel Peace Prize for bringing um, the Vietnam War sort of to an end, Um, but then was instrumental in this bombing of Cambodia, which led to a, a terrible sequence of events and many loss of lives in, in that country.
0: I mean, I have just a final quick thought on this. In a, a properly, evenly just world, which I realise we do not live in, but would Kissinger have ended up in the dock over Laos, Cambodia, Cyprus, Chile, East Timor, whatever you're having yourself?
2: I, I I'm going to be a politician here. I thought you were going to ask me, should he have got the Nobel Peace Prize, <laughs> to which I think there's universal agreement he shouldn't. Um, should he end up in the dock? You know, it raises a very interesting question about whether to what, I mean, he, what, he wouldn't have called himself a politician, but to what extent to, should politicians... Um, be subject to decisions by their government when they are no longer in office? Mm. Um, how much personal responsibility? I mean, if you. I've just been reading a book by a friend of mine, um, which I, I will plug. By, Go right it, ahead. It's about. It's by a friend, John Silverman, who you'd be familiar with, as a BBC correspondent.
1: Who I spoke to the other day.
2: Ah, right. Who's done an investigation. We're way off track here, but I will <laughs> we'll come back um, into why. In post-war Britain, do you know how many war crim- Nazi war criminals were prosecuted in Britain? I do not. One, um, and he's investigated it, and there's all sorts of reasons. Excellent book. Was that um, William Joyce? No, no. William Joyce was executed. He wasn't an. He wasn't a Nazi war criminal. I suppose he was, but he. Mm. These are the people who worked in the death camps and so forth, and plenty came over here, and. P.S. the British Secret Service found them very useful in the Cold War, which is perhaps why they weren't prosecuted. But we'll, we'll move on. And I've completely lost my train of thought. <laughs> uh, we... oh, prosecution. Yeah, prosecution. So, so he raises the question to what extent the, the one of the excuses used and this does come back. It's quite difficult in a court of law to prove individual responsibility mm. as opposed to. Um, being part of a government, partner organisation. Should he be prosecuted? Um, my heart says yes. My head says it wouldn't have been any point,
0: but it would have been quite fun to watch. Well, sticking with the subject of diplomacy, it would appear that US President Joe Biden has done what the entire United Kingdom could not and found a use for Liz Truss. The former prime minister who served in that role just seven weeks longer than anybody at this table has been informally enlisted as some sort of emissary in Ukraine's cause rallying support among isolationist American conservatives who appear increasingly keen on ushering Ukraine beneath the bus. Truss, who was famously outlasted by a lettuce, and it has been unkindly suggested, could probably be outwitted by one, may have found the international role she clearly craves. Carol, is this necessarily a terrible idea if it has the desirable effect, i.e. turning some of these conservative headbangers around on the subject of Ukraine?
1: Well, what appears to have happened here is that a um, a perfectly well-meaning group uh, called the Conservative Friends of Ukraine, who do all they can to bolster uh, support in the UK and uh, around the world for Ukraine, uh, had planned a trip to the United States to try to uh, bolster support, mm-hmm. in particular amongst. Republicans who are holding up the next package of uh, military and other supplies to Ukraine and Liz Truss seems to have seen this as a great opportunity to get in with um, several Republicans at a time that we um, could quite possibly end up um, with a certain uh, Donald J. Trump in the White House next year and leap in there and and, um, she she seems to have kind of hijacked this entire deputation (laughs) and now Um, positions herself as the leader of this delegation that is going in there and has used the opportunity to say how um, we need a Republican in the White House without mentioning any names and saying, of course, she's not going to get involved in the US um, presidential um, election. Um, But what they are engaged in is an important mission. Um, There are many, particularly right-wing Republicans, who um, don't want to carry on giving so much money and military hardware to Ukraine, particularly when they want to send it to help the Israelis mm-hmm. in their fight against Hamas. Uh, and uh, she is trying to use what influence she has. And weirdly, some US Republicans um, seem to think that perhaps they should have at least listen to what she has to say.
0: Well, weirdly is the key word, Ivor, but which is stranger, is it that Liz Truss is actually be willing to actually willing to be seen in public um, after? you know, her calamitous stint uh, in Downing Street? Or is it weirder that despite that calamitous stint in Downing Street, literally anybody is still willing to listen to her on any subject at all?
2: I think Liz Truss, just as awarding the Peace Prize to Henry Kissinger gave (laughs) a new meaning to the word satire, I think Liz Truss has given a new meaning to the word chutzpah. There is nobody who having managed to be the shortest reigning prime minister in this country, then goes to the conservative party conference now in Washington, has the woman no shame? Well, no, no I mean that, 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 I no regrets, a, that, that was clearly a rhetorical question. Yeah, but having said <coughs> that, uh, I can just see the, the, the logo or the uh, advertising her briefing and it is former British prime minister. And that, gives her a certain authority. As long as you don't read the small print for only 49 days, she might get some credibility in the Far West or in know-nothing country somewhere, he says, sounding like a snob, <laughs> um, which gives them a little heft. But just to re- repeat what Carol says, this is a worthy, personally thing. it is a worthy cause. Um, and if she can just turn the dial a little bit, Dare I say good luck to her? Um, Yeah, good luck to her.
0: Carol, just finally on this, lest we end up talking about Liz Truss for longer than she actually served. um, If we think about her potential ambition still in the realm of British politics, she is going to stand at the next election again, she does have the kind of majority that should just about survive the widely anticipated massacre of the Conservative Party. Does she actually seriously fancy another crack at leading it? Because the thing is, she was elected to the job by the members, and it was not the members who threw her out, it was her own parliamentary colleagues. The members might well vote her back in.
1: Well, she may well hold on to her seat. She has um, a reasonably solid majority, although the way things are looking for the Tories at the moment, (laughs) uh, there are no safe seats um, around uh, the UK anymore. Uh, I think um, even Liz Truss, who does not appear to have shown one shred of regret, apology, Uh, acknowledgement of her mistakes um, would be realistic enough to know that uh, the Conservatives, even the British Conservatives, um, would not have her back as a leader. But when you look at the prospect of uh, the next general election, when the Tories could go down to a pretty heavy defeat, and who knows who will end up leading the Conservatives after that. And it could be goodness knows that one of a, a whole array of um,
2: you tell me because of oliver dowden even
1: outspoken well i was going to say outspoken um, right-wingers, wingers, but it, yeah. it is quite possible that a more moderate figure like oliver dowden came back if oliver, oliver dowden was back i think liz trust can content herself with her west norfolk constituency um but you can see a scenario whereby if we were to end up with Uh, And another very right wing leader of the Conservatives in opposition, they could potentially find a role for Liz Truss again. And gosh, you know, she enjoyed being Foreign Secretary, didn't she? Um, Tootling around the world, um, posing with her hat on in Red Square and so on. And even as a shadow uh, Foreign Secretary, um, given that the Tories would be in opposition, um, she might enjoy a role like that.
2: Can I claim a little credit for Liz Truss? because I just remembered my one her speech was my former student. Should, <laughs> I, should I have been confessing this on air?
0: Well, it's too late now. It's all your fault, Ivor. You can hand that OBE. She did good speeches. You can, you can give that OBE right back. <laughs> uh, but now to one of those recurrent segments of the Daily in which we see if three journalists can somehow be cajoled into discussing the state of journalism. The solemn beard-stroking on this occasion is prompted by tidings that the BBC, alert as ever to what makes it valuable, plans to gut its late-evening news programme, Newsnight. Half of its staff are to go, and the show itself will be pruned to 30 minutes of... ...of what is being ominously trailed as interview, debate and discussion, i.e. perhaps shorter on deeply reported investigations and longer on bloviating opinion honkers. Um, Either is this, as it is being framed as a a capitulation to market forces, i.e. basically nobody much watches at barely 300,000 people? The way um,
2: I've heard that the BBC would characterize this, this is is recognising in the face of terrible cuts they have faced Mm -hmm. since 2010, £500 million less in the news budget, Mm -hmm. um, that they're bowing to the inevitable. Is it market forcing? Well, they are in a totally different news environment when Newsnight... Carol might remember better than I because she would probably remember when it was first invented what, in 2000 or maybe even earlier. Long before or, that, I think. Okay, where, um, you know, it was a very different media environment. Mm. Um, and in three, there wasn't opinionated 24-hour news channels which actually maybe make the BBC think they should have more opinion of their own or more impartial opinion. There obviously wasn't social media and there wasn't a public which is now the phrase that we... Kind of, news avoiders, News Avoiders three hundred thousand. Well, it wasn't that long ago when Newsnight was getting s- twice that. So something is going on, and the BBC is wanting to. Personally, I, I I regret it, and um, I think we'll be the poorer for it because it was is a great program, but
0: you know, the world is changing. Uh, Carol, there is at the heart of this, I know, an argument which goes on in the BBC about the degree to which an institution like the BBC should respond to market forces. On the one hand they do have to provide a, a service to their licence payers, which is, which is everybody, so they can't be too obscurantist. Uh, but also, is there not an argument that even if nobody much is watching, there is still an argument for a show like Newsnight doing the difficult and researched and expensive investigative features because even if nobody terribly much watches them when they're on Newsnight, they do have a wider resonance. They get picked up and they get talked about and the facts do see daylight. Should they be looking at it like that?
1: Um, I should just declare an interest because I worked for the BBC for um, most of my (laughs) working life as a political correspondent. I didn't work directly on Newsnight, though I occasionally contributed to the programme. Look, I, I think the BBC... Has has had no alternative but to face up to the market forces, uh, as Iva has pointed out. You know, you now have a plurality of uh, other channels that people mm-hmm. can watch: uh, GB News, uh, Talk TV, um, Al Jazeera, Sky News. and and so on. Uh, There are a couple of, I'm sure, excellent radio stations people could be listening to. Uh, Of (coughs) course, Monocle. Um, uh, Tron's Radio also has a brilliant nightly show. Um, And they've been forced to face up to that. That's why we've seen many rounds of cutbacks in the news division. But I think the problem for Newsnight is if, as it says, it's going to have to just cut down on all those serious investigations, um, the exclusives, things like Uh, The interview with Prince Andrew, which, of course, Mm -hmm. took months and months to establish. If it's going to be just another programme that has a bunch of talking heads, probably less outspoken and shouty than they are on a couple of the other uh, channels, then Newsnight completely does become utterly irrelevant. So I think the problem is that uh, it is now in this situation where... Unless it is distinctive, there's no reason for anybody to tune in and watch it.
0: I mean, either there is a dynamic here which I think is familiar to anybody who has worked long enough in media, you will see this particular merry-go-round go-round at least once, i.e. some brainiac somewhere approaches a, a very solid product with a very loyal audience and decides, no, we must go chasing a different audience and in so doing doesn't find the new audience and alienates the one they already had. Well... Carol, like I, and I also worked at the BBC, although not quite as long as Carol, um, will have sat in
2: on numerous meetings on radio and TV channels where he said, we've got to attract a younger audience. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, I mean, I once... I remember saying to the controller of Radio 4, another of my ex-students, um, that's when you know you're getting old when you're ex-students, and <laughs> um, saying... Um, we've, and I said... young people have got other things to do than listen to Radio 4 and to come back to a serious point you make the BBC has a a universal mission to serve all audiences, and that includes people who want serious talk at 10:30 mm-hmm. at night. So even if they are in 300,000, I suppose they would say they're serving it. But the market for they they've got a very difficult job of balancing market forces, as you rightly say, with the fact that they have, through the license fee, an obligation to serve the whole of the United Kingdom in all its diversity. It's a tough ask. I mean, I think they do a pretty good
0: job but there are occasional pinch points and we're seeing one now. Well, we shall move along to extraordinary developments in the realm of beans. Workers in a factory in Lincolnshire have canned the first ever commercial crop of baked beans grown in Britain. Baked beans, staple dish of the bone idol or hungover, are haricot beans hitherto imported from the United States, China, Canada or Ethiopia. The British beans have been bred to thrive in this country's somewhat milder climate and are being promoted as a fuel-saving environmentally alternative, though it seems vaguely inevitable that some reason will be found why they turn out to be vastly more expensive than those flown in from further flung locales um, first of all I, I just want to gauge the attitude of the table to baked beans Carol first of all where are you on them do you, do you enjoy them do you have a favourite baked beans recipe?
1: Yeah I mean just just a delightful comfort food a, a reminder of I mean that was that was my tea when I was little when I was mm. growing up and for people who are listening around the world perhaps they, they don't realise that baked beans on toast is is such a quintessential, I think, English rather than British dish. And so for me... The,
0: the Scots would fry them.
1: Yeah, I'm sure they, they, they probably have some... Um, or coat them in batter. Yeah, or, or add a, a, a dash of whiskey or something strange. But um, I, I, they do have a special part in the um, British culinary History And for me, they are, yeah, a, a quick, I mean, and they're actually apparently reasonably healthy. I,
0: you are right about their, their primacy in the British diet, Carol. I've, I was startled to discover earlier today a, an approximate figure for the number of tins of baked beans consumed mm. by your people mm. every day. Do no. you know what it is? It's about a million a day. It's two million a day. Three. Two million wow. tins of now, beans. I, I
2: I have two um, gems to offer you because doing my research. Um, firstly, um, I'm very delighted to have with me my a former student of mine from India, who tells tells me that they have solved the problem of the F word associated with beans. Mm-hmm. I'm talking here flatulence. Obviously, I, think I can say that they have a spice called ring. Was it ding? Oh, ring, an Indian spice that they insert into their beans which solves that problem but the more interesting gem because i could see you look completely non by that <laughs> is that the cousin of the baked bean is my particular favorite do you remember tin spaghetti uh very very vaguely. tin mm. spaghetti on toast in tomato sauce and oh no. did, did
0: you like did you favor the stringy spaghetti or the, the spaghetti that was manufactured to look like letters of the alphabet
2: Stringy. Oh, no, it, had to, it was proper spaghetti. You, you, not, didn't,
0: you didn't have the alphabet, the alphabet spaghetti.
2: The reason it sticks in my mind very quickly is my Italian teacher came to London, thought he spoke English pretty well, went into what we call a greasy spoon <laughs> and asked for spaghetti because he was feeling nervous and he knew spaghetti. And when the lady behind the counter said, on toast or in a sandwich he realised his English wasn't as good as he thought because how could you possibly have spaghetti on toast? Did, did he immediately flee for the airport that's never he been left, seen he, again? He, yep. Well, he did see it again, but again. However, so I'd deviate, but I totally agree with Carol. I think baked beans on toast is wonderful, sustaining comfort food. I love it.
0: So we're all clearly excited for British baked beans, but is there a serious point here, Carol? Is food air miles something we should care more about as we blithely throw Peruvian asparagus and Moroccan carrots into our shopping trolleys?
1: Yeah, well, I can tell you, Andrew, that um, when we were going to talk about this story, I I mean, I was shocked, I tell you, shocked to discover (laughs) that all these years that I've been eating what I thought was this quintessential (laughs) English dish and the beans come from um, the United States, Canada... Nigeria or China. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm somebody who does...
0: Fake if news. I think it's fake news. <laughs>
1: I do try and, and shop. I do try and shop we, we, we've,
0: we've got a penetrating insight into the British psyche generally. We, yeah, yeah. we thought that was ours and it turned out we just <laughs> nicked it from somewhere else. It's like welcome to the last several centuries of your island's history.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I am somebody who, who tries very hard to um, buy uh, produce that is produced as locally... As possible, um, you know, I I don't buy Peruvian uh, beans. I do have a weak spot when it comes to avocados because, but, but um, yeah. certainly
2: not Australian wine. No,
1: <laughs> <laughs> your loss. Um, uh, but but if we can produce. Uh, beans on toast and used haricot beans. Um, I I would have thought they would be cannellini, but there you are. It shows you how the ignorance about the food that I've been eating all these years. Um, And they can be grown in the UK. That has to be good. We apparently, um, about 50% of what we eat here in the uk is home produced which is not bad but clearly when we look at all the huge disruption that there has been to supply lines of all kinds of things the more that we can do and if farmers can adapt to our changing climate uh, and produce the beans here in the uk well i mean that that's fantastic
0: on that heartwarming note carol walker and Ivor gaber thank you but listeners don't go away there is plenty more specifically our letter from new york city here is henry Ree sheridan New York Republican Congressman George Santos says he won't run for re election in 2024. His announcement comes after the release of a House Ethics Committee report that found evidence he, Santos, broke the law. The committee unanimously voted to refer evidence of the Congressman's alleged wrongdoing to the Justice Department. CBS News congressional correspondent Scott McFarland joins me now here on the set. Scott, what does the Ethics Committee report say?
3: They found that he took campaign money and used it for himself, for some very luxurious things, the type of things that most people don't buy uh, out of their wallets. George Santos is the U.S. representative for New York's third congressional district. He won the election in November of 2022, flipping the seat from Democrat to Republican in doing so. Soon after he was elected, it emerged that almost everything Santos had said about himself publicly was a lie. He lied about the most fundamental aspects of his educational background, employment history and his family origins, as well as telling dozens of other fibs of varying sizes. My mom was a 9-11 survivor. They sent me to a good prep school, so, which was Horstman uh, Prep in the Bronx. I actually went to school on a, on a volleyball scholarship. I put myself through college and got an MBA from NYU. The fact that Santos had lied his way into office was contemptible, but his porkies were also compelling for their sheer scope. Why did Santos tell so many lies about so many different aspects of his life? And why were they directed, at least in the last few years, towards getting elected to the US House of Representatives? Was he attracted to the $174,000 wage that representatives draw, the shabby glamour of politics, or the relatively small amount of power he could hope to wield while in office? Or was it something completely different? To the astonishment of many onlookers, lawmakers have not been able to remove Santos since he assumed office, despite multiple attempts to do so. But now it looks like his goose might finally be cooked, Last week, the House Ethics Committee released a 56-page report outlining how Santos used campaign funds for personal purposes, defrauded donors and filed false or incomplete campaign finance and financial disclosures. The report details the ways in which Santos spent donors' money in excruciating detail. He spent campaign funds on Botox treatments, luxury clothes, and on OnlyFans, a website associated with adult content. He even used campaign funds to pay his own rent. The report is focused on Santos's financial fraud rather than his lies in general. This is understandable as the fraud could lead to serious criminal charges. The report states that Santos, quote, sought to exploit every aspect of his house candidacy for his own personal financial profit. So is that what's behind Santos's lies, the most boring possible motivation, greed for money? I'm not so sure. Santos seems to have lied his entire life, and not always for financial gain. There's a forthcoming book about Santos called The Fabulist by the writer Mark Chisano. In a Italian article published in Slate, Chisano writes that years before Santos launched his political career, Santos' mother would explicitly tell Santos' friends not to believe her son, who seems to have been a prolific liar from childhood. Certainly, Santos has lied his whole adult life and has secured previous jobs through lying, but none of them lasted. As Chisano observes, Santos may have seen politics as a field that he could barge into and succeed in through sheer force of personality and the creative relationship to the truth that comes so naturally to him. A lot of people overstate in their resumes or um, twist a little bit or ingratiate themselves. I'm not saying I'm not guilty of that. I'm just saying. I've done so much good work in my career. I want to make sure that if I disappointed anyone by resume embellishment, I'm sorry. So what happens now that the extent of Santos's wrongdoing has been officially laid out? Democrats are aggressively pushing for a vote to expel him from the House. Only five representatives have ever been expelled before. Santos's Republican colleagues are calling on him to resign, keen to avoid a divisive expulsion vote. Even if he somehow manages to cling on, after the release of the ethics report, he said for the first time that he would not run for re-election in 2024. His expulsion would trigger a special election in New York's 3rd Congressional District. Those who run can expect to be the subject of a significant amount of fact-checking.
0: That was our New York radio correspondent, Henry Ree Sheridan. And finally, on today's show, today's news of the death of Shane McGowan, former singer with the Pogues at the age of 65, has prompted two contradictory kinds of surprise. One, that he lasted this long, all things considered, and two, that he was mortal after all. Among many tributes today was one from his fellow poet, Irish President Michael D. Higgins, who described McGowan accurately as one of music's greatest lyricists
2: of you, with bottles in their hand, you need one more drop of poison and you'll dream of burrow.
0: McGowan became best known for Fairy Tale of New York, a bleakly hilarious festive duet with Kirsty McColl, which made the Pogues as inescapable a part of A British Christmas as Slade, Wizard, Jonah Louie, and Wham. It's a great song, but not entirely representative of the Pogues, who originally made their name in what turned out to be the surprisingly fertile middle ground between Irish folk music and English punk rock. The Pogues' second album, released in 1985 and produced by Elvis Costello, was named after Winston Churchill's possibly apocryphal quip about the three pillars of the Royal Navy rum, sodomy, and the lash. Playing us out is the opening track, This Riot in a Cemetery, The Sickbed of Kilcullum. <laughs> And that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Carol Walker and Ivor Gaber. The show was produced by Laura Kramer and researched by Harrison Warlock. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nichol with editing assistance by Mariella Bevan. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.
2: You remember that foul evening When you heard the banshee's howl. There was lazy, drunken bastard singing Billy in the Bow. They took you up to midnight mass, left you in the lurch. So you dropped a button in the plate and screwed up in the church. Sing a song of liberty, bring flax and packs and chucks and I'll take you from this dump here and I'll stick you in a box. Then I'll take you to prior and shove you in the ground. We we'll stick your head back out and shout, "We'll have another round." I the "Christ, that I could come we'll kneel around and cry." And God is in His heaven and Freddy's down by the
3: fire.